1: Good morning. How are y'all doing? So uh, welcome back. For those of you who are regular listeners, if you're new, we're happy to have you, too, to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, <laughs> Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins-Store. me, Joyce Vance. You know, we are so happy to be with y'all. We were together in New York City last weekend doing a little bit of television with our friend Alex Wagner. I got to say, the Texas-sized welcome makes it feel like home, so we are happy to be with y'all. We just have a little bit of news to talk with you about this week. <laughs> We'll talk about the most recent developments in the prosecution of the former president, Donald Trump. Did I say prosecution? It's really prosecutions, four of them. Um, We'll also talk about these efforts to weaponize the federal government, Republicans who say Democrats are doing it, but in fact seem to be doing it themselves. And did y'all know that Kim used to be a Supreme Court reporter? Kim who is our resident Supreme Court expert, will lead us through a conversation about the Supreme Court cases that are the most on our radar screens as we head into this new term. So lots to talk about. We look forward to your questions at the end of the show. We'll take as many of them as we have time for. So please limit yourself to one question. And as my friend Barb McQuaid likes to say, as law professors, she and I are interested in your questions, not your comments. So we have a lot to get to, but you know, this is the second time we've all been together in Austin for the Tribune Festival. I love your barbecue here in Austin. It is not Alabama barbecue, but it is some righteous stuff. Um, And and I have already partaken. I did have barbecue for breakfast. Um, But y'all, what are you guys looking forward to doing while we're here? What have you already done that makes Texas special for us?
2: Well, I am thrilled to be here in Austin again. It's a wonderful, wonderful city. And I have to say, I commend you on that really generous ovation as we came into church. You know, I'm used to having churches that are on the quiet side. (laughs) Not so much here in Texas. I remember when my daughter was young, I would say to her, now we need to be very quiet in church, right? Oh, yes. And do you know why we need to be quiet in church? And she said, because everybody is sleeping. (laughs) but not here. I like the Texas size ovation we get here. Uh, I had a chance to have breakfast this morning with some friends who live out this way. And although everybody else was having a healthy breakfast, like some oatmeal or, you know, egg white omelet or something like that, I said, I need to have the huevos rancheros while I'm in Austin. And it was chef's kiss delicious. So
3: that's what I've been doing. Well, mostly what I love about being in Austin is you. It's so nice to be with you and get this kind of warm welcome. I did have a great dinner last night at the Laundrette. That was really fun. Good place. But I am looking forward to taking home barbecue because that's the best here. I love it, and my husband loves it. So that's what I'm doing.
4: Yeah, I love how so much of this involves food. I had brisket within a half hour of touching down. I swear to goodness. I did. It was really great. But also, it gives me an opportunity to wear some of my favorite footwear. you got to show photos. those off. you got to show off those cowboy boots. That I bought uh, in Dallas many years ago. But, you know, it's a, the great state of Texas has a great sense of style. So it's fun to show that off here.
1: Well, we love being with y'all. Thanks for having us back.
4: Um, hey, Barb, do you
1: want to kick off? Well, let's jump into it, shall we? Um, as Joyce mentioned, there
2: are some developments in the prosecution's of Donald Trump. And um, one thing that I thought was really intriguing that we learned this week was some testimony provided by a former aide named Molly Michael. Now, this is a woman who worked for him, worked as an aide at Mar-a-Lago, and it appears that... um, she would, from time to time, get to-do lists from Donald Trump. And oh, look, they're written on a, a classified document. Is that the most Trump thing ever? Like, I am abusing classified information so that I can tell other people what to do. Um, so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And then when she told him that she had received a subpoena from the, uh, the, from the federal government, from the FBI, to go testify, he said, you don't know anything about boxes. Um, So that strikes me as some very interesting news. Jill, what do you see as the significance of that reporting in that Mar-a-Lago case?
3: So it's great reporting. It's dynamite testimony. I have to say, it reminded me of my Watergate experience where Rosemary Woods, the aides, became a critical, important witness. So here you have the same thing, uh, Molly Michael, and she proves the obstruction without a doubt. Don't say anything about the boxes. You don't know anything. But she also shows his reckless disregard for these documents by using them as notepads. It's just, it's a horrifying thought. So I think she is going to really put the screws to his case. He is going to be gone.
2: Oh, who among us doesn't use post-it notes with classified information on the other side? I mean, come on, once in a while. Well, there was some other big news in um, the prosecutions in the Jack Smith Uh, federal prosecution for election interference. There's a lot to keep up with, I know, with four different criminal cases. We need a whiteboard. Yeah. (laughs) You know what we need? Does anybody watch Only Murders in the Building? That's like my favorite show. We need that um, uh, Bloody Mabel's Murder Board, right, with the strings and all that to keep track of it all in the pictures. Um, But one of the things that I thought was very interesting last week was Special Counsel Jack Smith asked Judge Tanya Chutkin to do something no human has ever been able to do, and that is to gag and shut up Donald Trump. Um, Kim, you're sort of our resident First Amendment scholar as a a journalist. Um, What do you think about that? You know, it's usually fairly routine in a criminal case to get a gag order. Don't talk publicly about the case. But when you've got someone who is running for president, there is public interest in what he has to say. I mean, what are your thoughts about that?
4: Yeah, well, just first of all, the idea that you would get Donald Trump to do anything is just, you know, that's absurd on its face. But Barb is absolutely right. Like, that is a central part. And it's actually fairly routine to have some orders put in place during the conduct of a trial that limits what people can disclose with respect to the evidence in that trial. That sounds like, you know, we're using words like gag orders, and it sounds very uh, it's, it's really fairly routine. Now, the more sensitive the potential information can be in this case, uh, the more dangerous that information can be if it is seen as trying to influence a jury, trying to threaten prosecutors or judges, the more important it is to put limitations on that in place. And I think we will see that happening here. Generally speaking, judges tend to be more hands-off in that, especially when it's a political candidate or an office holder, because you don't want to be seen as muzzling someone whose speech on a regular basis is a matter of public concern. You, You don't want to be standing in the way of that that runs counter to the principles, if not the letter of the First Amendment. But here, I think that prosecutors will be able to make the case. Given what has already happened after Donald Trump has spoken, we have had judges who have needed to get protection for themselves and their children. Um, We have ongoing, or soon will have ongoing process of jury selection. The the administration of justice is so important that I think we will see an order, and if Donald Trump continues to talk, we will see perhaps contempt, uh, him held in contempt, and everything that can come with that, including potentially a jail, jail sentence. That's, that's the only problem
3: is what she will do to enforce it. It needs to be enforced. He is endangering the jury pool. He is endangering just everything about this case, the prosecutors and the uh, judge herself. But putting him in jail will cause a riot in this country. And I don't know what alternative there is. He has sure millions true. of people paying him to defend himself. And that's where the money's going to come from for a fine. The fine for E. Jean Carroll, $5 million didn't stop him from redefaming her immediately after he got the fine. So I think jail's the only alternative. I just think it's dangerous.
4: I'm not sure that it is. Actually, I think, and I've changed my mind, not only by uh, after talking to people in national security and in the Department of Corrections, but Donald Trump likes to, like, Publicized it. I think that's why he wanted a mugshot so badly. And he didn't get one until that last indictment. And they couldn't wait to use that and put that up. And he, you know, he started putting on his fundraiser without the Georgia, uh, you know, uh, seal behind him. I think he would use this and try to fundraise off of it and do th- I think in a weird way, they would try to use that to prove that he is being persecuted. And I actually think that that won't result in some sort of uprising. I think even his supporters now, this has been going on so long that they're kind of over it.
1: You know, I'm going to chime in with you on that one, Kim, and I've had a little bit of a change of heart. I think there's this mythology that Donald Trump can't be put in jail because he's a former president and that it's time to walk away from that. Would it be difficult? Yes. But, you know, the the Secret Service, they are problem solvers with their protectees. Um, And I suspect that they have had this one gamed out for years and that they know how they would handle it. You know, to your point, though, and and to, to what's always the subtext here is this fear that there will be civil war if Donald Trump is put in jail. If we are so concerned that his followers would resort to that level of lawlessness, then maybe it's time to hold him accountable.
2: I'm processing what you just said about the Secret Service having this one gamed out for years. You know, Secret Service agents are around the president all the time, so what you're telling me now is that when they were standing there in the corner, stoically with their sunglasses, <laughs> staring, you know, straight ahead, we couldn't see their eyes, what they're really thinking about is, I've got to come up with a plan to jail this guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but don't you think, you know, the Secret Service, right, they do a routine walkthrough for somebody that they're protecting in your district, they're looking behind the doors in the kitchen of the restaurant where they're going to eat. They, they know exactly what they'll do.
2: They got it all planned yeah. out. They're ready to go.
1: Well, Joyce, let me ask you one last
2: question on the Trump world topic. Um, and let's go down to Georgia where the RICO case is pending. And we're seeing all of these defendants filing motions to remove the case to federal court. So we know that the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, tried to do this and lost, at least in the district court. And this week, the judge uh, held a hearing for Jeffrey Clark, who, by the way, I think is the most despicable of all of these defendants because he so besmirched our de- Department of Justice. Um, but also three of the fake electors uh, have filed a motion to remove to federal court. Why is it they are so desperate to get out of state court and into federal court?
1: Did y'all expect that you would become experts on removal of criminal cases from state court to federal? Such a shock. I talked with so many prosecutors who, went before this started up, didn't know that you could remove a state criminal prosecution to federal court. I mean, this is not a common thing. It's a good question, right? Why would they want to leave behind a young state court judge who's a Republican appointee, For an Obama appointee in federal court, someone with a reputation for being thorough and rigorous, although I have to say, as an aside, I am very impressed by the way the state court judge is conducting himself in his courtroom, right? Um, It's interesting, there was speculation early on that it had to do with the jury pool. Fulton County leans strongly Democratic. Northern District of Georgia, the federal district, is much more diverse. But the Northern District of Georgia, when it tries federal cases, draws its juries just from a few counties and it doesn't change the composition of the jury pool. And I resist this whole notion that the way people vote in presidential elections reflects how juries decide cases because juries are made up of individuals and there are a lot of different, so I just don't think that that can be it. Um, Two possible reasons. One is what happens to the case on appeal, and some of these defendants, especially Mark Meadows and Jeff Clark, may think that they will get a better hearing from their Federalist Society brethren on the 11th Circuit on appeal. Again, I'm not compelled that that's accurate, but that could be the thinking. And of course there's that time-honored strategy in Trump world, delay and create chaos. I think that's really what this is about. We'll see Trump file a motion to remove on the very last day he can, September 29th, because more delay and more confusion. And that's the strategy when you don't have a good legal defense.
4: I have to say I did chuckle this morning when I heard on the news that Donald Trump posted if he wanted the government shut down because that would shut down the federal yeah. case.
3: Wrong. Who wants to tell Sorry.
4: him? Sorry. Uh-uh.
3: <laughs> Courts will keep on going. I also think there could be a third reason, and this is really devious, but federal prisons are better than state prisons. And I think they're all thinking... Club fed. Exactly.
1: Well, they're not exactly club fed. This is the best one I've heard. I had not thought of this. But, you know, Georgia, DOJ is investigating state prisons for violating the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one last difference, of course, is television. In Georgia state court, everything is televised. In
2: federal court, there are no cameras in the courtroom. And so it prevents them from spreading disinformation about what's happening in the trial if it is happening in plain view and everyone can see it. So that could be another reason.
3: So now we're going to talk about the weaponization committee and all they're doing. I mean, it's a long time. Republicans have been accusing Democrats of doing this. And now we're seeing live what weaponization really looks like, because they're really doing it. And so I want to start our discussion about a couple of the examples of weaponization that's going on now. Uh, Jim Jordan, of course, chairs the we- OK, you can o- boo. Yes, boo. <laughs> Yeah, Jim Jordan, I'll say it again, boo again. (laughs) Uh, He's the chair of both Judiciary and the Weaponization Committee, and in those roles he has done a lot of things that I think are despicable. Joyce, I'm going to start with you. You wrote a very, um, you said to me, snarky, but I would say accurate, uh, tweet about the hearings. And do you
1: want to talk about why you did that and what you thought of the hearing. You know, I'll just say, you can look up the tweet if you want to see me at my pre-coffee snarkiest. (laughs) Um, No one can throw snark like Joyce Vance. I don't know, Barb McQuaid. I don't know. Um, My husband and I have four kids, and we always taught our kids to respect the office, even if you didn't like the person who was currently holding it. Jim Jordan tries my patience. (laughs) That Um, Southern four makes me mad as hell. (laughs) At a time where people are debating the way Senator Fetterman dresses on the floor, um, I am a lot more worried about Jim Jordan's demeanor, his lack of respect for the process. Um, And I think I'll just leave it at that because I suspect this crowd shares my view. We should demand better from our elected officials. So I hope
3: some of you saw the Attorney General testifying in what was supposed to be oversight. I mean, I don't think there was any oversight happening there. But Kim, what did you think of him as a witness? I mean, I thought he was really powerful when he said, I will say this, I am not President Biden's attorney, and I am not Congress's. I am the people's attorney. So that was one of the best lines of all. But in Overall, what did you think of him as a witness?
4: I, I agree with that, Jill. First, I just want to say in terms of weaponization and Jim Jordan, it, it wasn't a weapon, but if you have not read uh, District Attorney Fannie Willis's response to Jim Jordan, she yes. cut him. She yeah. cut him very politely, so yeah. I encourage all y'all <laughs> to read that.
1: Um, Southern prosecutors never count us out.
4: Yes. Yes. So, yes. So... Listen, those who listen to the podcast know that I have been critical of the Attorney General on more than one occasion. I don't always love his approach to things. He is very thoughtful, very deliberative, is not a fast-moving individual in a lot of ways, is very serious. Um, And I think those are the very qualities that made his testimony before this committee so effective and powerful because it showed what it means when you take the rule of law seriously, when you are steadfast in its protection, and when you project that in front of people who are far less serious. And I think, I hope most people, if you haven't, um, it's available on C-SPAN, go watch this, because I think for all of us who care very much about the future of democracy and and the guardrails that remain in place, watching that should bring you some comfort that there is an adult in the room, there is someone in charge that is doing what they ought to. Thanks. And Barb, what did you think in terms of,
3: were any points made by any of the questioners, Democrat or Republican.
2: Yeah, I uh, I thought that uh, there were a couple of really interesting exchanges that really just sort of demonstrated what was going on at this hearing and what wasn't. Um, One is um, Republican Congressman from Kentucky, Thomas Massey, do you know who this guy is? This is the guy who sent out the Christmas card with his family and kids holding them automatic weapons uh, and said, you know, Merry Christmas, Santa, please send ammo. Uh, to which Lauren Boebert wanted to get in on the action and then created her own, very similar, you know, hey, you know, we'll, we'll top yours. So this is the guy, so consider the source. Um, but uh, when he was testifying, he was spreading such disinformation What he said to Merrick Garland is um, normalizing the January 6th attack. He said, you've been locking up grandmothers who uh, just for peacefully protesting. You're putting people away for 20 years just for taking videos. 100% false. Absolutely not true. These are violations of statutes, people prosecuted in court for very serious crimes, assaulting police officers, trespassing in a place where they shouldn't be, and shutting down uh, an important certification of government. So I thought that was um, a great example of how the Weaponization Committee is absolutely gaslighting America by trying to turn the tables and say, you know, I'm not the weaponizer, you are. So I thought Massey really typified it. But I thought the best response was um, Eric Swalwell from the Democrats, um, who, who really made the same point Kim just made about Merrick Garland. Now, I, I, I agree with uh, Kim that there have been some people who are critics who want him to be more forceful and would like for him to have pounded the table a little more and given it right back to him. But I think... He does our country a service by being the adult in the room. And that's what Eric Swalwell said. Like, sir, um, you are a serious person, and obviously there are many people here who are not serious people. So thank you for being a serious person. And I thought that was a great uh, framing, uh, better than anybody else, of the whole exercise in that hearing.
3: Great answer, and I want you all to have noticed that Barb did this with her fist it's the cover of her new book.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. So which all of you available buy. for pre-sale on Amazon and other booksellers. Due out February 27th. Attack from within. Thank you.
3: <laughs> okay. So let's do another quick round of questions before we run out of time. I want to talk about the impeachment inquiry that they have started. Yeah. And they've scheduled the first hearing for when? Two days before the government shutdown. Are they doing anything to stop the shutdown? No, they are not. So that's a little scary to me, that they are doing this. And, of course, they're doing it based on what evidence? Zero. None. So, Joyce, (laughs) let's talk about what's the standard for starting an impeachment inquiry.
1: You know, these are not serious people, right? I mean, (laughs) that goes without saying. The House gets to make up its own rules for impeachment. There's not, you know, a thick rule book like we have in federal court with rules of procedure... But the Founding Fathers left some expectations, including that it was a serious process that should not be commenced in the absence of reason to believe that high crimes or misdemeanors against a sitting president or other official could be proven. I bet you recall a lot of Democrats were concerned that Nancy Pelosi was not quick to commence impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump on either of the two occasions when he was impeached. And that was because she wasn't sure that there was enough evidence. And both of those events played out in front of us. We saw whistleblower testimony. We knew that Trump had withheld security aid for Ukraine, trying to get political concessions in the form of an announcement of an investigation into Joe Biden. Impeachment number one. And we, of course, all watched January 6th. Impeachment number two and Trump's inaction in the face of the Capitol being overrun. There was plenty of reason to believe that Congress needed to conduct impeachment. What's going on here? After five years of criminal investigation using a grand jury, a Trump appointee who was the U.S. attorney in Delaware and who has been held over by Merrick Garland did not find evidence sufficient to indict Joe Biden for participation in his son's foreign business dealings. And so not deterred by the fact that a U.S. attorney with far superior resources to theirs and FBI agents and IRS agents came up empty-handed, Congress has decided to open an impeachment hearing. It is a page from Trump's playbook. You just announced the investigation and I'll do the rest. That's what's going on here.
3: So that sort of leads to the question I have for you, Kim, which is there's some evidence that Kevin McCarthy caved to Donald Trump's pressure and that he also went forward with this inquiry without an official vote which is normally required. So was that totally improper and what's going to happen?
4: Kevin McCarthy sold his spine to get the gavel <laughs> and we're seeing that as an example of this. He has no power against the most MAGA wing of his caucus in the House and Anything that he does that goes against it risks him losing that power. So what you are seeing is him putting power above everything, not, not just the rules, even things, even over what is logical in many cases, including this looming shutdown, because he knows if there was already a deal in place, he knows if he backs that deal because it has Democratic support, that's the end of his speakership. Everything now is being governed by that Faustian bargain that he made and it, anything that he does. And, and I still don't think he'll be able to keep the gavel anyway because he's going to do something at some point to annoy the MAGA wing and there's that. So everything that Kevin McCarthy is doing right now is suspect, honestly. So um, the other thing
3: I want to ask about is Jordan has said he's subpoenaed or has done subpoenaed Hunter Biden's bank records. It's apparently in an effort to link money that he received to his father, which, of course, wouldn't be shown probably in his bank records anyway. But what do you think the chances are that he will get those records at all or that they will show anything?
2: Yeah, this is, I think, it goes to the point that Joyce made about going on a fishing expedition. You know, when we were prosecutors, before you may begin an investigation, you had to have what is called predication. You can't just say, let's go after this guy in case he's doing something wrong. You had to have an articulable, factual basis that a crime had been committed. There is no similar standard, but it seems to me that this is just a fishing expedition. Let's see what Hunter's records show. Let's see what Brother James's records show. Aha, and make some links and see if they lead anywhere, which really strikes me as Uh, an abuse of the power that they have. Will it succeed? I don't know. They don't, you know, remember the Mazar's case that came out by the Supreme Court last year said that before you can get a president's records, you have to make a showing that it's necessary and that you can't get this information from any other method. I don't think that same rule applies for President's family members, and so I think instead of going after Joe Biden, where they're unlikely to be able to meet this standard, they're going, up, you know, doing an end round around that that rule by getting the family members, those closest to Joe Biden, which really feels simply like guilt by association. So, you know, back to Kim's spineless point, it's a wonder any of these guys can sit up straight in their chairs during those hearings, but they don't have any spines. <laughs> so this is
3: kind of depressing. Can anybody? offer something to the audience that isn't so depressing about this? Yes.
4: <laughs> Anybody in the audience I, have there's, something? I'll there's 12. going to be an election. Yeah, I got one. Get out and vote.
3: I think that's the answer. It's turn out the vote. Everybody here has to get at least 10 other people to vote. So that's, I think, our hope for the future is that we will vote properly.
1: Go to iwillvote.org to check your Registration status, make sure it's up to date, and get people who aren't registered to register.
4: So that leads us to the fun topic of the U.S. Supreme Court. Did you fly here on the private seat in a plane
2: that was otherwise going unused? <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, somehow Clarence forgot to pick me up to, to bring me here. Um, so, yeah, we talk a lot about the Supreme Court on this podcast, as our listeners know, and often we are talking about ethical lapses or how many you know jets Justice Thomas has flown on or how the court is absolutely crippled by its own ineffectiveness, especially since the Dobbs leak. But there's actually substantive stuff that the court does too. And that's what we're going to talk about today. A new term starts in just a couple of weeks. And we cannot go through everything that's going to be happening in this term and what all the sticks are. There are some big cases that we will not have time to talk about today. But I wanted us each to just talk about one case that each of us is looking at. And I want to start with you, Jill. What's on your radar this term? So, there's actually a lot of
3: things on my radar, but since I could only pick one, I picked two. But it's,
1: <laughs> that is the most Jill Weinbank thing ever.
3: <laughs> well, it's actually, they're sort of linked. They are the same thing. They both relate to the use of social media. Um, and the, they're both cases of elected officials who have gone from a private page to a public use of their social media. They are posting about their government responsibilities, COVID policy, school board policies. And so the question is can they block people? There was a decision, and I, I have to mention this because it was a law school classmate of mine, Judge Buckwald in New York, ruled that Donald Trump could not block people on at real, po- or at real Donald or whatever it was called. Uh, when he was on Twitter and using it, he was blocking people and not letting them say, what they really thought about him. And she ruled that he could not do that, that that violated the Constitution because it was a public forum. It was affirmed by the Second Circuit and then he lost the election and lost his right to use Twitter. So it mooted and the Supreme Court never decided it. So now these are two new cases that raise the same exact issue of whether a public person can use it. This is important because nowadays we get our news Unfortunately, not from vetted sources like the Texas Tribune or the Boston Globe, but we get it from social media. Chapter so, four
2: of my book. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Let me do the posting for you. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's... Okay. Anyway, so that's why I think it's important. I am going to take a little, just mention the name of a case, Muldrew, which is a... Uh, Section 7, Title 7 case that I think is important not just because it deals with the rights of an employee about being transferred, but because I think it could impact on the DEI policies of corporations. And so I'm going to watch that case too.
4: All right, just moving down the line, Barb, what are you looking at? Uh, You know, as
2: a former prosecutor, a case that I'm looking at is a case called United States versus Rahimi. This is a case that is challenging the law that says Uh, it is a crime for a person to possess a gun if they are under a court protective order against an intimate partner based on a finding of violence. So, you know, there's a statute in um, the U.S. Code, we used it all the time, Joyce, you probably use it too, 922G, that makes it a crime for people to possess a gun in certain categories. If you're a felon, you can't possess a gun. If you're a a drug user, this is the Hunter Biden charge, you can't possess a gun. Uh, If you have been deemed mentally incompetent, you can't possess a gun. So about seven different categories, but one of them that's really important that got passed in the 90s as an amendment to the Violence Against Women Act was this very important provision that says it's a crime when a person uh, gets a protective order against their intimate partner to possess a gun. Really important for protecting the lives of intimate partners in domestic violence situations. Mr. Rahimi has challenged that law. Now, back when I was a prosecutor, I would have said, no chance, there it is. It's a a statute, it's certainly in the best interest of public safety to have this, and so even though there's some impact on the Second Amendment, there's a greater interest that outweighs that. Um, But that was before the Supreme Court decided this case called Bruin, a couple of terms ago that came up with this, um, this standard to look at gun restrictions under the Second Amendment that goes back to the founding. And it says that the regulation restriction on gun rights has to be both consistent with the plain language, you know, these are textualists of the Second Amendment, but also it has to be a restriction that was historically recognized in light of the history and traditions of the Constitution. Well, Kim wrote an interesting piece in the Boston Globe about this. At the time of the founding, men were allowed to engage in chastisement of their wives, which meant they could beat them. So if we're going back to the founding, that's going to undo every right for, you know, everybody, right? Unless you were had the same kinds of rights you have today. So... It's, it's, a, it's a standard that I fear is going to come back and haunt us again and again and again as various challenges get filed. And so, Rahimi, the fact that they took this case, like they didn't take this case to preserve the status quo. And so I think we're going to see this case fall. And when this falls, we may see lots of other rights fall as well uh, that didn't exist at the time of the founding in 1789, ladies, when the Constitution was
4: implemented. Those are the rights we will uh, revert to, I fear. And what's so crazy about this case is what we've seen with a lot of past gun rights cases is the plaintiffs, the challengers in these cases, are people who are sort of sympathetic. You know, they're usually law-abiding people who they find to bring these... Rahimi? This guy is a violent, horrible person, and it's really going to the Supreme Court saying, please, let me be able to have a gun. I mean, it's really wild how this debate has descended. Joyce, what are you... On that cheerful note, what are you looking at?
1: (laughs) I don't have anything good to add, but before I answer, I'll just remind you that when we take questions, and we hope that you all have lots of them, we've got two microphones on either side of the aisle here, and so I think shortly after I answer, we'll be at that point, and and we'll look forward to doing that. So here's the Supreme Court case I've got for you. CFPB. Sounds like a real um, sexy case, right? Keep y'all awake. (laughs) It stands for Com- Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You may remember this was the 2011 brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, right? Unregulated and underregulated sectors of the financial business institutions where vulnerable people were taken advantage of. Um, so I have a personal story about this that I'll tell you. Here's what the case in the Supreme Court is about. To Barb's point, the court doesn't take cases when they want the status quo to rock along. And I think, I fear that they've taken this case because the CFPB's uh, 10 years, 12 years in existence are about to come to an end. The challenge is this sort of boring case about how the Bureau is funded. Their funding mechanism is a little bit different. They get to suggest what level of funding they, they need based on a prior year's expenditure, and Congress doesn't come back and refund every year. So the challengers, a fine organization predominantly consisting of payday lenders, um, they're challenging that funding mechanism. You know, this is a bad thing. This is an, an office of government, an agency that has protected people with student loans from being taken advantage of military families, people who have payday loans, all of these gray areas. CFPB, for me, as a U.S. attorney. They were a fabulous partner, both in criminal prosecutions and on the civil side of the House. And in 2012, the Bureau held its first full day of field hearings, where it goes out to communities and asks for information about problems. And the new director, Director Cordray, came to Birmingham. And we did that... Field hearing together. I was grateful for his help because I had a serious problem in my district involving our military families who often, when the military member is on a long deployment, the family has real financial issues. And many of these families were being victimized by payday lenders who could charge outrageous amounts of interest. I mean, we're talking it would wrap around and become over 100%. And when you drove off of Redstone Arsenal, which is in Huntsville, Alabama, part of my old district, there were street corners where there'd be a payday lender on every corner. Um, CFPB helped us deal with that problem. I am forever grateful. Pay attention to this case. If the Supreme Court permits the payday lenders to put them out of business, we all suffer.
4: Yeah, that is an important question. So the case that I'm looking at, um, you know, it wouldn't be a full Supreme Court term without gerrymandering. (laughs) And so there is... There is a gerrymandering case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that I think is going to be very important. It involves the first congressional district in South Carolina. Now, one interesting thing and one reason why in all of my coverage of the U.S. Supreme Court as a reporter, I didn't cover gerrymandering cases that much back then. Because the way that gerrymandering challenges are made, they have their own process, right? They go before a three-judge panel, then it's automatically appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. But it's very fact-based, which means that the decisions only really affect the district at issue. Well, that was in the past what we have discussed on our podcast already is a case that came out a couple years ago called Rucho v. common cause in which the supreme court ruled that federal courts have no jurisdiction at all to take up challenges of of partisan gerrymandering, which means that the states divided up their districts in an effort to protect one political party or another. Not only is that not unconstitutional, but courts, federal courts can't even review that question. If it comes before them, it's not it. They can't take it up at all. Well, in places like South Carolina and much of our South in the United States, if you take a partisan gerrymander and a racial gerrymander and do a Venn diagram, it's a circle. LAUGHTER <laughs> And that seems to be the case in South Carolina, where in order to protect a district that was once solidly Republican, but in the last election was down to single digits and how close it was, they took about 30,000 black people around uh, the Charleston area and moved them to another district. Well, the three-judge panel unanimously said, yeah, no, that's a racial gerrymandering. You can't do that. But the line drawer said, oh, no, no, no. It's a partisan gerrymandering, which means that you can't stop us from doing that. And now that's headed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which really gives it its first uh, chance to try to sort out how do you tell the difference between a party, partisan gerrymander and a racial one, and depending on what test they adopt, it could provide a blueprint for these, uh, these states to racial gerrymander on its face and just wrap it up in a bow of partisan gerrymandering so it could have massive impacts that's one that i'm looking at they'll,
2: they'll probably use that same old test what does the history and tradition of right. the
4: country say oh i guess uh no right to vote for yes. you folks i am out of luck if we keep going by this <laughs> history and tradition act in a lot of ways Uh, well, on that, Cherie, note, it is our favorite time.
1: <laughs> so we're we're ready for your questions. Why don't we start here? We'll go back and forth, um, and one of us will answer each of your questions. Well,
5: I believe it was Clarence Thomas who... Uh, in the, Will you tell us your name, please, I, where I, you're I, from? Oh, I'm Joe Wilson, said. and I'm from Austin, Texas, yes. and I'm a retired lawyer. Yes. Uh, ah. <laughs> I believe it was Clarence, who, uh, Clarence Thomas who who wrote that opinion in that gun case that said you have to go back to the way things it were was in 1789. Well, in preface to my question, uh, there's news today that Clarence Thomas has attended at least two Coke donor summits, putting him in the extraordinary position of having helped a political network that has brought multiple cases before the Supreme Court. At least two donor events. Anyway, my question is, If we have to go back to 1789, didn't they just have, you know, single-shot muzzle-loading rifles? I mean, can't we ban assault weapons based on that? Yes, it's such a good question.
2: Thank you for it. In the case of Heller versus District of Columbia, from about... Uh, 2010 or thereabouts, I think it was, um, I, that, that, that argument was raised. This was a case where um, uh, a man argued that he should be permitted under the, the um, Second Amendment to keep a gun in his home, and Washington, D.C. had some gun control laws to address their serious violent crime problem, and he challenged that law, and the Supreme Court said, despite the militia clause, right, the need for a well-regulated militia, even though we, we call ourselves textualists. Eh, we're just going to ignore that part. And we're going to rule that the Second Amendment right is an individual right that every citizen has, even if you're not in a militia. And that very argument was raised. And, you know, they're looking at the language and the history and all this sort of stuff. And somebody says, well, if we're going to go back to 1789, as you just said, a gun then was not an AK-47. It was a single shot musket that had to be reloaded each time. It didn't shoot straight. And you know what the answer to that was? Oh, that's not a serious argument off with the back of the hand and no serious consideration of that whatsoever. So I I find that the problem I have with textualism is that they pick and choose. They're, They're textualists and historians when it helps and ignore it as dismissive when it doesn't. Hi, thanks, y'all. Um, my name is Sarah Stogner. I live in the Permian Basin. I-, I wanted to know your thoughts on the Paxton trial, if you guys followed that. I think we should all get CLE. I'm going to report, self-report my CLE for watching um, that, but just would love y'all's opinion on that. So I was actually deluded
3: into thinking that this was bipartisan and that he would be convicted. And as I tweeted that, Um, my surprise at the acquittal, despite huge evidence. Everybody said, well, this was Texas. What were you expecting? So I still remain surprised the evidence was clear. Um, Does that bode ill for future trials of Donald Trump? Will there be, as there was in the special grand jury in Georgia, one person for each count who says, oh, not on that one? Um, I worry about that. But like I think all my sisters... I've tried enough cases, I trust juries, they make decisions, the politicians maybe not in this case, but jurors will make a decision based on the evidence presented in the courtroom, not on their preconceived notions, not on their political or partisan motives. So I don't think it's going to affect the future. I think it's sad that you have such a corrupt person who has been able to manage for how many years now, nine, to not go to trial on his criminal... I don't even get that. That's beyond beyond. It does. Beyond. It
1: boggles so. the mind. Hi. I'm Nancy Lynch from Austin. Um,
2: I was wondering if you think that Donald Trump may flee the country. And if so,
1: what does that?
3: And where to? What happens?
1: Absolutely. No. Actually, actually, in Hungary, for example, the extradition treaty uh, is airtight, supposedly, but uh, there's an exception for if the person is fleeing the country because of political persecution which is what Donald Trump uses all the time:
4: yeah as the political reporter of uh, the, the resident political reporter on the stage I would say no because everything that Donald Trump derives his power from is right here in the United States and he that's why he is using everything that he can uh, is to protect his own his own power which is solely based here. He's running for president in order to avoid these prosecutions, in order to hold on to his supporters, in order to hold on to his money, in order to hold... He goes to Hungary. He can't live, you know, at Mar-a-Lago and go golfing and and do all the things that he can. So I think, just, I don't think he wants to flee the country. So that's why, just logically, I just don't think think that that's a big risk. I don't know. Trump Tower of Moscow has a certain ring to (laughs) it.
6: (laughs)
7: Hi, my name is Annika Henry. I'm a student from the University of Texas, El Paso. So my question for you all is that you talked about the hope for us being people getting out to vote. Um, And we also briefly touched on social media. I guess the question would be, would you say that the algorithmic features of social media is posing a problem in voter education? And if so, how can we manage that?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. It's an excellent question, and thank you for your concern. We have, as Professor McQuaid has written a really fabulous book about issues with disinformation in this country, and they are fueled by the way some of the algorithms are worked. Let me address the positive aspect of your question, because the science of algorithms is a little bit beyond me. I went to law school because I'm bad at math. I think get out the vote is the most important thing that happens in this country, not just every four years, but it's something that we need to think about in ways we're not used to in this country. We need to have, I think, um, and I'm, I'll confess that I'm a little bit you know, sappy on, on this topic and on patriotism. We have the right to vote for our elected officials. There is no excuse for having someone like Donald Trump or any one of his ilk in elected office. That means students bear an outsized share of the burden for making this work. And I think if social media fails, you'll have to move beyond social media, but I continue to believe it's a very powerful tool for educating people and mobilizing voters it's just not the only one, and I am old enough to remember the good old-fashioned teachings of the 60s. And it occurs to me, for instance, that um, when a Republican debate occurs on the campus of the school I teach at, the University of Alabama, that I hope that the students will listen politely to what those candidates have to say, and I hope that they will also educate their fellow students in the community about different views so that we can all be informed
7: voters. Thank you you for coming. Thank you for being here. I listen to each of you uh, very carefully. I'm a clinical psychologist. I hear what you're saying and I hear the media very uh, uh, adroitly avoiding some issues and I'm always feeling refreshed when I hear uh, each of you speak because you speak with such clarity and you're each very informative. My name is uh, Dr. Sue McCann. I'm a resident of formerly of Chicago and uh, of then Hawaii, now the Austin area. and so. My sense of the demographic of the country is uh, maybe a little bit greater than uh, some or others, uh, because I've had the experience of living as a minority and also in the majority culture. My question is, uh, my concern uh, is with the billionaire class uh, and specifically people like Leonard Leo and Jenny Thomas And I wonder what your feelings and your thoughts are about what can be done with these individuals who are polluting our democratic process.
3: So I want to answer that, not just because you're from Chicago, but because after Watergate, there were laws passed to prevent the kind of dark money that we're now seeing again. Citizens United changed everything. And we have to find a way to go back But we also have to find a way, in in the thing you mentioned, to put a code of ethics in place that actually means something so that we don't have this. Um, The Supreme Court has also made it more difficult to prosecute uh, public corruption cases because they have changed the rules for that. So we need to make some changes in our laws and we need to make some changes in our ethics rules. Ethics became a big thing for lawyers right after Watergate. New rules were put in place. Well, look what happened just now. How many lawyers are indicted in Trumpgate? So we need to do some changing. It is a terrible thing.
6: Hi, my name is Paul Stemco. I'm the first vice chair of the Williamson County, formerly Red Williamson County, now Purple Democratic Party. Uh, I hope our law professors will appreciate this question. And oh, first of all, thank you so much for defending democracy and educating the country on law. How would you defend Donald Trump? <laughs> Sorry. How, would you de-
3: How would you defend Donald Trump? I'll take this one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would explain to his client that it is my ethical obligation to advise him to plead guilty. <laughs>
5: Um, I want to make sure I get this quote accurately. No provision in the Constitution gives them, Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. (laughs) Uh, Samuel Alito. Uh,
4: Kim. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. Did you finish your question?
5: (laughs) Is there a basis in constitutional history or precedent in legislation that backs that statement. For an originalist, I think he would be kind of, you know.
4: The answer is no. You can all read your Constitution yourself and see not only is there no basis for such a statement, but that our Constitution actually sets up three separate uh, parts of government, three separate and co-equal branches that are meant to be a check on one another. So it is exactly Congress's job to regulate. The US Supreme Court and Congress has done so. That's the reason why we have nine justices. That's the reason why the court meets in October and closes in June. Congress did all of that. So the good justice is incorrect.
1: But nice try, right? Nice try.
6: Sir? I I appreciate the great, great work you guys do. Love you when I get you on MSNBC. Craig Bruska uh, from Chicago, originally retired in New Braunfels here in Texas.
2: Why are so many people fleeing Chicago, Jill?
6: <laughs> i married a Texas Hill Country, girl, so therefore I had to come south. That was a promise uh, I made love. to her. For love, that's a good reason. By reminder that I left God's country, so. <laughs> but my question is, and it's a civil question rather than a criminal question, the, you know, they won the battle initially to strike down the health care law in Texas because it threatened women's lives. And they've documented and shown it. It's now going to the appellate court. Uh, what, you know, does, I mean, if Texas courts rule with that, you know, is there any chance the Supreme Court, in their infinite wisdom, will back up women and their health?
1: Look, Texas is leading the way in turning women back into second class citizens. Um, mississippi 's right there with them that 's where the Dobbs case came from and My attorney General in Alabama has now announced that he will prosecute women and people who help them travel out of state to obtain abortion care. Um, I would like to believe that this supreme Court will draw some lines, that there will be some conduct that's too far for them, a bridge too far. But when it comes to abortion, they seem to have this special jurisprudence that's not tied into pre-existing standard of law. How else do you reverse 50 years of precedent and Roe versus Wade? And so traveling across state lines seems like a pretty bold move for an, a state's attorney general to try to criminalize just like some of the maneuvers that have been pulled in Texas where litigation has been commenced in these one-judge districts where the judge is known to have profound anti-abortion views. But the Supreme Court has not shown any willingness to do anything to stop off these moves. I think it's gonna be up to us citizens at the polls to impose some
4: reality and to restore some rights. All right, we have four minutes left and four questions. We can do it, though. Let's go. Uh,
8: Jeffrey Skillman. I'm here from Austin, Texas. I grew up in Indiana, not quite Chicago. Good um, enough. And I feel like I'm auditing a law a law class. Um, can by, you walk up to the microphone? Sorry, I, I feel like I'm auditing a law class these days. As I, I'm now retired, and so I, I read and, and listen to a lot of you guys and many others. Uh, I just finished a course this past Saturday. It was on impeachment in the state of Texas. And there were some things that I heard the defense presenting as arguments, which I understand they can get away with some things that the prosecution can't. But they were arguing that the uh, whistleblowers had gone to the FBI without evidence. And there was some We're in the lightning
4: round, so can you ask the
8: question really fast? I'd, I'd just like your thoughts on the defense's arguments about the Uh, not bringing bringing evidence to the FBI, and also the fact that we haven't heard anything from the FBI means there's obviously nothing there, as as a defense argument.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like you're talking about maybe the Hunter Biden investigation and these IRS whistleblowers. The Paxton case. Oh, in the Paxton case. In the Paxton case. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as Gerald Ford once said, the standard for impeachment is whatever Congress wants it to be. And I think the same is true in a state court proceeding. And so unfortunately, from our perspective, where law is based on rigor and standards, I think when you turn to politics, uh, it is is much looser. And so I think that I share your concerns that they're not basing it on that kind of rigor. But I think that's what we're left with when it comes to political processes. Ma'am? My name's Warinda Harris. Good to see you today. Could you talk a bit about the recent uh, lawsuit being brought against uh, West Point, the affirmative action lawsuit, whether you think that this may also wind uh, its way into the Supreme Court, and whether military recruitment might have something to do about a a decision?
3: Yeah, um, I'll be happy to. I was general counsel of the Army in the Carter administration. I know
2: how... Jill has had literally every job. (laughs) She used to clean the windows here. (laughs) Fabulous job. I let
3: the sun shine in. Um, Yeah, I think it's a serious issue. It's so interesting that they were excluded from the affirmative action at the um, college level because they are a college. And I think that we're going to have to wait and see. I think it will get to the Supreme Court. I think there are going to be many other consequences as we look at other ways in which affirmative action at the corporate level and again that's why I mentioned the Muldrow case although I didn't have time to discuss it but and it's a case with bad facts so it could lead to bad law so that worries me a lot because this is a very important issue and colleges are now getting around this um, but there's also the challenge to the legacy rule and of course what's happening you get rid of the legacies and racial diversity suddenly is
1: there. So
3: yeah, it's a great question. Thank you.
1: So with apologies to the remaining questioners, I'm, I'm getting the hook, but can I please ask that you either email your questions to us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them to us on Twitter. Let us know that you are still in line here and we will make sure we answer them next week or during the week on social media. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Joyce Vance. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. To keep up with us every week, follow Hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, Hashtag Sisters in Law.
4: Kim, I love your boots. Thank you. You came dressed for the event. I love these boots. I I bought them in Texas, and every time I come, I try to wear them. Everybody in Texas should wear boots, right? They are some very beautiful cowboy boots, and I think Kim has a
2: new nickname. We've been calling her Bootsy.
4: (laughs) (laughs) These boots are made for walking. And that's just what they'll do. One of these
7: days, these boots are gonna walk all over you.
4: yeah